So Isaiah chapter 1, and I will be starting to read at verse 9. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon Sabbaths and convocations I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your grace, for your mercy. We are so grateful that we can come before you and pray to you, knowing that you have cleansed us. That though our hands had blood on them, the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, has washed us clean through faith in him by your grace. Your son, Jesus Christ, alone could make us right with you. Your word is true and tells us of this. And all these things are for your glory. Father, we pray that you'll guide us in this time, that you'd give us wisdom and discernment through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may know your truth. For to know your truth, your Son, Jesus Christ, is to be set free. In Christ's wonderful name, amen. Amen. This is a powerful section of Scripture, and this is one of the key themes that we're going to see woven throughout the prophecies of Isaiah. This is going to become one of the key themes. The key themes. Because for God, God is after 
the heart. God is after the heart. Not the surface exterior. The surface exterior can look whole. It can look sound. It can look strong. But God can see into the heart. And if within the heart there is sinfulness, there is corruption, there is hatred toward God, there is disobedience and wickedness. It does not matter how good the outside looks. Ultimately, it will be crumbling down. I mentioned this before when Cam and I bought our first house after we were married in Seattle. The inspector came. And there was a fresh coating of paint on the outside and that. So just from appearances, it looked pretty good. The inspector came by with his hammer and he was tapping on the wall and this and that. And, that. and he looked at me and said, are you going to buy this house? And I said, yes. It was the only house we could ever dream of affording. Yes, we're going to buy this house. He stopped me again. Are you going to buy this house? Yes. Do you want the full inspection? Yes. So after saying that, he pulled his screwdriver out of his pocket and he went up to the exterior wall of the house. He looked at me again for the third time. Are you going to buy this house? And I said, yes. Okay, you get the full inspection. And he took the screwdriver, a Phillips head screwdriver, and he began pushing it. And he pushed it through the drywall. And he pushed it through the stud. And it came out the outside of the house. And he yanked it back and you saw this gaping hole of rot. He looked at him and he said, are you going to buy this house? He said, yes. Then he took me down the crawl space. And we're shimmying through. There was a section, there's only 10 inches between the wet dirt and the joists. And he took his big hammer and he just started whacking. He says, let me show you these floor joists. And he swung that hammer and busted a two by six in half like it was nothing. And rotten pieces of wood went flying. And he just went through. Bam! Bam! And I had to say, stop! I get the picture. He had a lot of fun, that inspector. It was his dream. And we bought the house. We bought this house knowing that the exterior looked awfully, awfully good, but it was rotten and decayed through and through. And we were blessed. We had a very good inspector who knew that. He could see. He could see how the stains were on the ceiling and the drywall. He could tell. He could tell by pushing how weak the walls were and, and that he was very gifted. He had been doing this for over 30 years. Well, it is this chapter of Isaiah. When it comes to the people of God, the people who had the temple, who had the, the laws, who had the sacrifices, who had all the system that was to point them to a holy God. And their need for this God's gracious 
forgiveness. So even at this point in Isaiah chapter 1, on the outside, on the surface, things looked sound. Sacrifices were being offered to God. Offerings. They were doing their assemblies. They were going through their religious motions. But do you see what Isaiah does here in this section through the power of the Holy Spirit? He literally takes out the hammer and just knocks one rotten piece after another, showing that this, these people are so corrupt and so wicked that this form of religion was nothing but a very thin coat of paint over rot corruption and decay so what's so powerful about this section of isaiah is it gets to the heart of what was supposed to be how the people knew god and how they were to draw near to god but god again exposes the heart he exposes the heart and if you look at this section again if you go back to verse 9 isaiah chapter 1 verses 9 through 10 Here the prophet Isaiah speaks to the people of God and he uses the terms of Sodom and Gomorrah. You cannot use more powerful terms of indictment of sin and wickedness in the scriptures than Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah became the the example, the archetype of what it was to be in rebellion against God and what it was to experience God's just, holy wrath and judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah just just became how you described God bringing his judgment on a disobedient people. So for Isaiah to, to use Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 9... In verses 10, in verse 10, as our section begins, he literally calls the people Sodom and Gomorrah, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And at this, the people's minds would would be taken back. They, They all knew the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They all knew this story. It's very clear as as Genesis 13, 13 states, as it it captures Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 13, 13 says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. How wicked was Sodom and Gomorrah? Abraham, when the Lord came to him and told him that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham began to say, oh, Lord, but you wouldn't do it if there were 50 righteous people, would you? And he's 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 working this down, working this down, working this down. Even if there were just five righteous people, you wouldn't do this, would you? But as we see very clearly, when the angels come and the full wickedness of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah is on display, there weren't even Five righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And by God's grace, Lot and his wife and his two daughters are drug 
by the angels out of the city so that they would escape the raining fire and brimstone. But even Lot's wife, even though she had been so miraculously saved by being pulled out by the hands of the angels, her heart still longed. And one glance, pillar of salt. God is holy. He is just. He wants everything. Your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. There's no turning back when God has saved you by His grace. So we understand this throughout the Scriptures. Our other prophets who speak to the people of Israel also use Sodom and Gomorrah. We see this in Jeremiah 23. In Jeremiah 23, verse 14, it says this, But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Then you have Ezekiel, who even takes it further. Ezekiel, in chapter 16, in verse 47, and in this section of Ezekiel 16, he refers to Sodom as uh, the sister, sister Sodom. But he makes this very clear statement, starting in verse 47 of chapter 16. Not only did you walk, here he's speaking to God's people, not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. So here, God is speaking through the prophet to his people and saying, not only are you like Sodom and Gomorrah, but you have passed them up. You have outdone them in your wickedness and immorality. So that's the power of this statement in Isaiah when when the prophet Isaiah calls out to the people and say, Hear Sodom, hear Gomorrah. It's invoking the truth of God's judgment on people. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We see it also in the New Testament. Both in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in Jude, we see where Sodom and Gomorrah is lifted up as the example of where God pours out his judgment on disobedient, wicked people. In 2 Peter 2 verse 6, he says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes... He condemned them to extinction, making them an example. That's the key, an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So here's where Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is is understanding the key significance of Sodom and Gomorrah is it is an example. It is an example. But he goes on in verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. In verse 9, 
then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Remember that was Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9 says this, that if God had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. So even in verse 9, you see the grace of God who is going to save a remnant in the midst of him bringing his fiery judgment. So 2 Peter 2, 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. That again is what Jude says. In Jude 1, he talks about this. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example for undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And you see the two main sins that are lifted up concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. They rejected God's authority. They rebelled against God's truth. And therefore, they gave themselves over to all forms of immorality and perversion and disobedience to God. Because that's what happens when you remove yourself from under the authority and the truth and the power of God. You've cut yourself free from the only anchor that is going to hold you firm in the truth and you will drift away that's what happens that's what happens and that's what we see happen with Sodom and Gomorrah and that's what we see is happening with the people of God in Isaiah but what's powerful about Isaiah chapter 1 is you see this litany where God is challenging at the heart of their hypocrisy the hypocrisy of the people of God was this They continued to perform the exterior duties that were given to them as the people of God with their sacrifices and offerings and their new moons and their festivals and their assemblies. They still did those things, but the whole time their hearts were not true. It was was an acting. It was a pretending. It was an external carrying on these practices while inside their hearts had no care, no concern, and no love for God. They still may have looked fairly good on the outside, but inside was all death, corruption, and sinfulness. So that's where you see this litany beginning in verse 11. Beginning in verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beast. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Whoa. That's powerful because God is the one who gave them these sacrifices. He's the one that told them that this was how they were to 
properly approach him through sacrifice, through offering, through the system with the high priest and, and offer these things on their behalf. But what God is getting at here is if you're doing these things out of a sense of entitlement or you're doing these things out of a sense of privilege or if you're doing these things in hypocrisy, if you're doing these things on the outside yet your hearts are not in love with me, God says, they are meaningless. They are worthless. I am tired of them. Whoa. There are two key phrases here that, that when they're spoken, they take you back further in the Old Testament. They take you. And that's what I love about Isaiah as the Holy Spirit's speaking through Isaiah and he's giving these prophecies to people of God, he will, he will use a phrase or, or use some key words that are to transport the people of God back to something that happened earlier. So that they would, through God's grace, go, aha, aha. That they would be awakened out of the slumber of their disobedience to God. And the key free phrase here is again in verse, verse 11. And it's at the end of it. It says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, that's an interesting statement. Because earlier, God does speak of delighting. When the heart is right and the true motivation. But here he's saying he does not delight. Well, at this point, first, you want to go to Exodus 17. So we're going to trace this back to how this is developed in key phrase. For first, Exodus 17. So here you have the people of God and they are being led by Moses and God has just provided water for them though they were grumbling from the rock. And in the midst of this, the Amalekites come. Oh, the Amalekites come. Here they come. The challenge of people of God. Verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And this is one of the greatest military strategies ever seen. As long as Moses' arms were in the air with the staff, the people of God were victorious. But if his arms began to weaken, the other side, the Amalekites, began to get the upper hand. So ultimately, you have them propping up Moses' arms. I love this scene. To keep them in the air, to do what he cannot do in his own strength and power. All this is to show that God's the one bringing the victory, not the people in their own strength. So you have this, and if you go down to... 
Verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. Verse 13, so Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And here's the key verses, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Okay, God makes a promise that he will completely destroy the descendants and the people of Amalek. So verse 15 Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, For hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord, and the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. But there was a promise that one day they will all be destroyed. So now you go to 1 Samuel 15. That's the foundation. That's the context. So now 1 Samuel 15. Here we see this key statement. I do not delight in sacrifice. This is the context that this statement comes out of that Isaiah is going to he's drawing the people back to this scene in the scriptures. So if you go to 1 Samuel 15. And I'm just going to be skipping through different verses here. So if you start first Samuel 15, first, if you start at verse one and Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Okay, so here God is going to fulfill the promise he made back in Exodus 17. So verse 3 of 1 Samuel 15. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy Israel. Everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Everything. Everything. That they were not to allow any living thing to remain alive of the Amalekites. So this is the command that is given to Saul. So as we go down, the, the battle takes place and Saul is victorious. The people are victorious. But we see a problem here. So it's starting at verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Uh Uh-oh. 
things aren't going going as they're supposed to here. We already we already got the key problem here. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Okay, so this is, this is the problem. Verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. This is a heart-wrenching grief that comes upon Samuel. So if you skip to verse 13, so Samuel goes down to see Saul in verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, here is Saul's words, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And then we see where, where he's relaying how God has rejected him. You go down to verse 19. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission of the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. One of the most powerful moments in the Old Testament where Saul is rejected as king because he did not obey the word of the Lord as the Lord instructed. He obeyed God's law to a point 
and then went his own way where he saw best. You see the sin? That's the key sin here. Saul obeyed God's law to a point until he thought he knew better. And he went with his own will, his own way, and his own desire. And this is the same sin of the people of God that Isaiah is speaking to. So when Isaiah says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. That's verse 13. That's the key one. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. And God continues on speaking through Isaiah and saying, your feasts have become a burden to me. They weary me. And the ultimate statement, when you make prayers to me, I will not look and I will not listen. That's a complete cutting off of any hope, any peace, any joy for God's people. The only way we make it is to know that because of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can cry out to our Heavenly Father. That's the only way we make it as believers in Christ. So to hear these words spoken to the people of Jerusalem and Judea because of their continual disregard for God's truth and His law, it does, it shakes us to the core. But again, as Isaiah is speaking this, he's taking them back to this moment of Samuel and Saul. Is the ultimate truth at the heart of Isaiah chapter 1, verses 19 through 17, again, is in 1 Samuel 15. Again, I'll read these verses again, starting at verse 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As much in obeying the voice of the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So we see where just as God rejected Saul as king, he has now rejected the people of God in Jerusalem and Judea because of their pride and hypocrisy. When Jesus came to Jerusalem and Judea, he spoke out against the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious leaders because many of them were in this same state. Were on the outside, they looked good. The outside of the cup was very clean. The outside of the tomb was whitewashed. So they sounded and they looked very religious, very holy, very reverent and obedient to God. But Jesus says, inside that whitewashed tomb, you are full of dead 
men's bones, meaning corruption and wickedness and disobedience. Same thing with the cup. Oh, the outside of the cup is washed, but the inside is full of filth and disobedience. Why? Because the, so many of the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees and religious leaders were self-righteous. They thought they were entitled. They were privileged. They could go through the exterior motions, but their hearts were far from God. And that's why Jesus spoke to them. As Isaiah spoke to the people here, ultimately, what does God desire? A humble and contrite heart. A heart that cries out, save me because I can do nothing. Forgive me because I have rebelled against you. Please love me for I have been unlovable. But there you see the grace of a mighty, just, holy God that God sends His Son while we are yet sinners. While we are yet rebels. While we are yet hard-hearted and rebelling against God, God sends His Son to die and God sends His Holy Spirit to give us new hearts. Christ said, I didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Let us remember that ultimately the way of grace and the way of rescue and the way of salvation from the judgment, a Sodom Gomorrah judgment that's going to pour on the ungodly, the way and the truth and the life of rescue is in Jesus Christ. The way of forgiveness, the way of grace. All we must do is so humble ourselves that we would cry out, Jesus, I can do nothing to save myself. You have done everything. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Let us pray. Father, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. Father, we pray that you will forgive us that you will guide us. Father, we pray that you will remove from us any forms of hypocrisy, any forms of external devotion without heart, desire, and passion and love for you. Father, we pray that you would remove from us any senses of forms of entitlement or, or privilege, knowing that you show no partiality. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to, to not turn to idols or other things for our comfort and hope, but know that you are our rock, our fortress. You are our only comfort and hope. In Christ's wonderful name, amen.